listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. I'm going to open with a question as we open a new series today. What would you say God is like? What is God like? Sounds like maybe a question we're asking little kids, what do you think God's like, you know? But it's not just a little kid question, it's for us. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what, what do you say God is like? Maybe if you had some theological training or you've been in church for a while, you might say, well, God is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. You get all the omnis covered. Maybe you even throw out, he is immutable. Right, you got these grand theological terms, maybe even, even parsing it out even more. His communicable attributes are these, and his are incommunicable attributes. And you, know, you have all these terms that you've learned, and that's fine. Or maybe you're just more simplistic, and you're like, you know, God is vast, or God is love, or God is big, or God is holy. What is God like? You ever wonder? You think about it. We don't have to wonder. We could ask God. If you could ask God, God, what are you like? What would he say? What do you think he would say? We don't have to think because actually there's a uh, scene in the book of Exodus where God tells us exactly what he is like. The scene is Moses who has just interceded for the people of Israel. And then he goes to God and he says, show me your glory, God. And God says, you can't handle the truth. But here's what I will do. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover your face so that you cannot see me. And then when I walk by, I'll remove my hand so that you can see my afterglow where my glory was. And that you can see. And he does. And Moses is, because he sees it, his face starts to glow so much that he has to cover it because the people of Israel can't look at him just from looking at the afterglow. But when he does it, when he covers his face and when he walks by and he removes his hand, God proclaims something about himself, who he is. And he says this, the Lord passed before him being Moses and said this, the Lord, Yahweh, the Hebrew covenant name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness. You want to know what God is like? See what he has said about himself. This is who he is. And we're going to look at a new book starting today. It will be a book that I promise you we will not be in for 61 weeks. This will be a quick one. Five weeks. But this book is about that. Well, it's not on there anymore. It's on the back wall. It's about that. That the Lord is gracious and slow to anger. This is what it's about. And, and I tell you that because if I asked all of you in this room who have any kind of church background, if I said, what's this book of the Bible about? I'd get all sorts of different things. I'd, be, I'd hear, you know, repentance and I'd hear running from God. I'd even hear a fish. But the book we're going to look at is not about any of those things, although they may be inside that book. The book we're going to look at is about who is God. He is Merciful and gracious, he is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And if you haven't figured it out, the book we're going to talk about is the book of Jonah. It's not about a fish, although there is a fish. It is about what is God like. So we're going to do next five weeks talking about that. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Jonah. If you're looking for where that is, it's right in between Micah and Obadiah. You're like, what are those? You need to look them up. Look it up in the front. It's the easiest thing to do. Jonah is what we call a minor prophet. He's minor, not because he doesn't have a major message, because his book is short. You have the major prophets. Those are the long ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And you have the minor prophets, the one chapters, the three chapters, the six chapters. All right, he is a minor prophet, but he has a major message for us this morning. Four chapters, 48 verses but it plays a huge piece in the story of what God is doing. In fact, it, it is directly correlated to the greatest event of all human history, the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus only mentions by name the five specific prophets in the gospels, Jeremiah, Daniel, Elijah, Isaiah, and Jonah. So he may be minor, but he is definitely major in his message. And what we're gonna do today is this, very simple. If you're kind of a guest or you're new to our church and you came in somewhere in the middle of Matthew, you don't know this, so... Um, what we usually do when we start a new book of the Bible is we talk about that book and its background and its, its context. What's going on in the world when this book was happening? Because when you understand the historical context and who's written to and who's written by and what's going on, it makes the book come alive to you a little bit. So I'm gonna give you some background information on this book, give you a brief outline of this book so you will know where we're going, and then we'll jump into just the first three verses. We'll just crack the door on the book this week. Uh, because I want us to be biblically literate. I want us to know the Bible. I want us to know if someone says, Jonah, you're like, oh, I know what that's about. It's about these things and and here's where it took place and this is why it's significant. So that's where we are going. Um, Jonah is one of the, if not the most attacked books in all the Bible, believe it or not. You're like, why? Why don't people like Jonah? Well, have you read Jonah? Do you know what happens in Jonah? Right? Some people, they find it kind of hard to swallow. I mean... (laughs) It's a little, it's a little bit fishy, fishy, you know? Okay, okay you're, you're awake. awake. Okay, good. Let me give you three reasons why we should interpret this book literally, historically. Because there's some that say it's an allegory, it's a metaphor, it's like Iliad and the Odyssey, it's just a story. Let me give you three reasons why it's not. And you can go deep diving more on this, but these are three significant reasons. Number one, history. Okay, so if you read in the first century, there was a man named Flavius Josephus who was a Jewish historian, who was not a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He was just a Jewish historian. His, his works are still around today. He mentions Jonah specifically by name as a prophet who came from this town, who went to Nineveh, who was in a fish. This is not a follower of Jesus. He's just writing history, right? He's, he's teaching it as history. And so even those outside of Christendom understood that there was a guy named Jonah who lived in that day. Number two reason. The, the biggest reason Jonah is attacked is because of the miracles, Bottom line, you got the fish. That's just one of the miracles. This is filled with miracles. You got the storm. You got the fish. There's a worm. Did you know there was a worm? There's a worm. Should be Jonah and the worm. Could be just as much, right? And so all these miracles. But the problem that people have with Jonah has nothing really to do with Jonah. It really has to do with Genesis 1.1. Because Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop there. If God can do that, if he can speak the existence of everything that came out of nothing and create universe, boom, just like that, billions of galaxies and all these complex systems, if he can speak that into existence, then a worm and a storm and a fish are really gravy. 
So really their issue is not with, with Jonah, it's with God in the beginning creating. And since we don't have a problem with that, then we can understand this to be history. Here's the biggest reason. Take all the others aside. The biggest reason you should understand this is historical and is really happening is the Lord Jesus. Because he did. We'll go back to Matthew for week 62. All right. But here's what, what, what Jesus says about Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Just as, it's a word that means in the same exact way. Just like that, so will me, the son of man, be in the three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus correlates the historical event of Jonah and the fish with his resurrection. And says, just like that, this is gonna happen to me. And then he goes beyond that. He says, the men of Nineveh, the one we're gonna see in a couple weeks, the greatest revival maybe in human history, they will rise up at the judgment against the Pharisees Why? Because Jonah, these men repented with a five-word sermon. And all they had was five words. Y'all have Jesus walking around in your midst, miracle after miracle, and you reject me. They had hardly anything. So in the judgment, they're going to judge you because you did not listen. And he goes on. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the generation. She came in the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She didn't have an Old Testament. She didn't have the Ten Commandments. But she came and she believed and all she heard was Solomon. You have much more. So all these historical facts are going to, to pay off in the end. But here's the point. Jesus correlates all these historical things to his resurrection in the end. I will be like this. Nineveh's real, the queen of the south is real, Solomon's real, Jonah is real, the fish is real. And if it's not, then Jesus is, one, he's either deceived, which means he's not God, or number two, he's a liar, which means he's not God. So just understand this. The reason I believe Jonah is true is because Jesus believed it's true. And that's enough for me. And there's deeper reasons you can go into. But we, we need to understand this as something that's significant and really happened, right? It really did happen. It really did take place. Jonah really was in the whale or the fish. We don't know what kind it was. Um, that's all we know. All right? So he's a real guy, really happened. Let me, let me give you uh, uh, kind of some of the background. How does this little book, this 48 verses fit into the entire story of the Bible because it's significant. And I know the Old Testament is challenging for some of us, right? And we'll go to the, we love to read our gospels and we love to read Romans. And some of us, you know, love our eschatology and we get our charts out and we read Revelation and that's great. But we shy away from the Old Testament because we don't really know how it works, how it fits. It's confusing. And, and part of it is the way it's organized in our Old Testament. You know, Nehemiah is one of the last books historically, but it's like right in the middle. How does that work? And then Job is right in the middle. And that's like one of the first books. That's taking place during Abraham. And, that. and so you got to understand that Nahum is not Habakkuk's twin brother just because they're next to each other in the Bible, right? It's not how it's put together. And so when you understand how it's put together, it helps you understand what's going on in the book. So what I want to do is I want to give you the Old Testament in seven minutes, all right? Uh, and so for some of you, this will be old hat. You've been in church all your life. This is a review. For some of you, you, you don't know anything. And that's great. That's why you're here. That's part of my job is to equip you because I want you to be able to think through your Bible so that you understand the story of the Bible from beginning to end. So our creative team put this together. Hopefully it's a little bit helpful for you. You can copy it, take a picture of it. It's, and there's no copyrights or anything. It's just to help us walk through. We created a timeline for you to work through. The, this is all of human history right here and biblical history. I mean, basically most significant events that ever happened. It's, it's not that funny, really. I don't know why we're laughing, but... <laughs> All right, so um, if you're in the balcony, you can't see me, I'm sorry. This will be on just for a few minutes. You just have to listen to my voice. But let's just walk through it. This is the Bible, really. This is the Bible. All right, Genesis 1, the fall. Genesis 1's creation, 
And then Genesis 3 is the fall, right? God creates heaven and the earth. Everything's great. Everything's perfect. There's a garden. They have to work. It's great. Until Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are deceived and choose to sin. And so the sin enters and there's a fall. But even then, even back then, God intervenes and says, one day, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we saw the fulfillment of that in Matthew, that Jesus of Nazareth, the seed of the woman, crushed the head of Satan at the death and resurrection, right? Boom, that's fulfilled. You got a flood, you have a tower of Babel, you have a bunch of stuff. And several hundred thousand years later, not hundreds of thousands, hundreds and thousands of years later, uh, there's a man named Abraham, 75 years old, no kids. Wife, a little bit younger, but they can't have kids. And she's, they're way beyond kids time. But God shows up and says, okay, here's what's gonna happen. I want you to leave your home, go to a land that you've never been to. It'll be for you and your descendants. And in you, all the nations of the world, every nation will be blessed. Abraham believes him, leaves, and heads to what we now call the promised land or the, the land of Israel. But he doesn't have a kid. And 24 years later, he's almost 100 years old. He's 99 years old, still no kid. And two angels show up one day and say, this time next year, happy feet. You can have a little boy. Now his wife's in the tent eavesdropping. She's listening with like a glass. And she hears that she's gonna have a kid. And she laughs. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. And the angel's like, why is she laughing? She comes out and she's like, I'm not laughing. She's like, you were laughing. And so one year later, they name the little boy that is born Yitzhak, laughter, Isaac. And Isaac grows up and he has twin boys, twin boys. And it's prophesied before they're born that the younger would rule over the older, which is uncommon that day. The older would serve the younger. So the first one's born and he's all red and hairy. And so they call him Red Esau, which means red. And the younger one came out and he's holding his brother's leg when he comes out of the womb. And so they call him surplanter or deceiver, Yaakov, which means liar, right? Jacob and Esau. Sure enough, Jacob fulfills his name. He lies to his dad. He deceives his brother. He steals the birthright. He steals the blessing. And because Esau wants to kill him, he has to run away. So he runs away for his life. He has 12 sons while he's gone. These 12 boys become the 12 tribes of Israel, names like Simeon and Judah, Levi, Issachar, Asher, Dan. Eventually he goes back home and one night he has a wrestling match with an angel. It turns out to be God who was letting him hang for a while because God could obviously clearly wrestle him. And at the end of the wrestling match, God knocks his hip out of socket and, and, and there's Jacob holding on to God's leg and says, bless me, bless me. And God changes his name at that point. And he says, you are no longer deceiver, surplanter. You will now be Israel, which means one who strives with God, one who wrestles with God. So Israel goes back into the land with his 12 boys. Now the 12 boys don't get along, especially with the older 10 and the younger two. And there's one boy named Joseph that they all hate because he gets straight A's and never disobeys. He's dad's favorite. And so they come up with a scheme and they pretend that he is killed by a wild animal, but they really sold him into Egypt. And old Joseph goes down to Egypt and he spends some time in jail. But eventually he rises to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, because he predicted, uh, he, he interpreted a dream of Pharaoh and predicted that that meant there will be seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. And so he gives a plan to get ready for the famine by, get, by storing up during the seven years of plenty. And Pharaoh says, why don't you be in charge of it? So he raises up. And when the famine gets so bad back in the land of Egypt where his brothers are, they have to come to Egypt and realize that her brother is still there, but he ends up saving them all 
and protecting them all from the devastation of the famine. That's the book of Genesis. And that what they thought would be a three-hour tour ends up being 400 years in Egypt because there are Pharaoh, another Pharaoh who does not know Joseph and doesn't know what he did arises and he enslaves the Hebrews and they are enslaved there for hundreds of years until God sends Val Kilmer, the prince of Egypt, back to Egypt to deliver his people. And through 10 plagues and miracles, God takes the people through the Red Sea into the wilderness where he gives them his law. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, no, not Joshua yet. He gives them his covenant. He gives them the 10 commandments. He gives them designs for this, this tent, which is called the tabernacle, where God's presence would literally dwell with them everywhere they went. And so they start heading to the promised land and what should have taken just a few weeks ends up taking 40 years because of their disobedience and their lack of faith until at the end, Moses dies and he hands the baton to a man named Joshua. Joshua takes the baton and he takes the Israelites into the promised land where they begin to drive out all the Canaanites that were there who would fill the land. And for 40 years, they do so. And then Joshua at the end says, I'm done. I've done my job. You have to finish the job. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You got to choose this day who you're going to serve. We're going to serve the Lord. You go and do the same thing. So he gives them their, their territories and they're to go drive and finish the job. They don't. And so these enemies keep attacking them and keep enslaving them. So God raises up judges, Caleb, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Gideon, Samson. And over 400 years, these, these judges helped deliver the people of Israel and helped drive out their inhabitants until finally you have the last judge, a man named Samuel. And Samuel arises and the people come to Samuel and say, we're sick and tired of this judges stuff. We want a king. He said, no, you don't. You don't want a king. And they're like, oh, we want to be like everyone else. Everyone else has a king. We want a king. And Samuel's like, don't, don't listen. We don't going to get a king. And he goes to God and God says, give him a king. They want a king? Fine, let him have a king. So he appoints the first king from the tribe of Benjamin, a man named Saul, who was the kind of king everybody thought they wanted. Six, four, handsome, shredded, ripped. But he turns out to be a bad king. So God says, I'm gonna have another king, man after my own heart from the tribe of Judah, which way back yonder, God prophesied that the scepter would never depart from Judah. That's where it's coming. That's where the promised one is coming from. And so God finds himself a short, handsome dude to rule because short, handsome dudes rule. <laughs> and his name is David, beloved David. Becomes the greatest king Israel ever has. And even though he's got his flaws, specifically he commits adultery and tries to cover it up with murder, he's a man after God's own heart. And God even takes that mess and the affair that he has and he takes that woman with the affair he has and he brings forth a son named Solomon who would be the next king after David died. And Solomon steps in as the wisest man who ever lives and he builds this grand temple in Jerusalem, right? Unbelievable, eighth wonder of the world. People would come from all over the world to just see it. And this was the golden years of Israel, they, their vastest, the biggest the kingdom was, the most powerful, the most wealthy. Silver was like pebbles in the street, they say. It was just the golden years. Everyone looked back, this is it. And it was great for a time, but, but Solomon's heart was turned against the Lord because he had 300 wives and 700 concubines and they turned his heart against him. And so when he dies, he appoints his son, Jeroboam, 
to be king, right? And, and his son, excuse me, Rehoboam, there's a lot of Boams. Rehoboam is his son and he becomes king. And all the people come to Rehoboam and say, look, we loved your daddy. He was a great king, but he was a little, he was harsh. So could you please lift the burden a little bit, be a little bit gentler and we'll love you and we'll serve you faithfully. And Rehoboam goes and asks his father's counselors, hey, what do you think I should do? You think I should listen to him? They're like, yeah, you should listen. And then he goes to his boys, his frat boys. They're like, what do you think I should do? And they're like, no, man, you need to be harsher than your dad. So who does he listen to? He listens to his buddies. And he goes back to the people and says, my father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. <laughs> and they said, okay, we're out. We're out then. You can have your kingdom. And so the 10 Northern tribes all back out of the kingdom. And they're like, we're done. And the kingdom in 931 splits to the North and the South, the Yankees and the Southerners, basically. The South is the tribe of Judah with Benjamin, which is right in the middle. And the North is the other 10 tribes. And it's split. And this is why your Bible gets a little confusing because when you're reading Kings and Chronicles, you're like, what are all these kings? King, 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 king. That's because what it's telling you is this guy was the king of the North. This guy was the king of the South. And this guy was the king of this. And it's con consistently like overlapping and there's wars and there's the North fighting and there's the South fighting. And there's all these things. And meanwhile, God all this time is calling prophets and sending prophets, repent, 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 repent. And so all the prophets, all those major and minor prophets, they're prophesying at some point in the Israel's history. Most of them are what we call pre-exilic prophets. They're prophesying before the exile. And they're, and they're calling Israel to repent. Repent, believe, repent, believe. And so you can see all of them are, are going during different kings, northern kings. Some of them are prophesying to the to north. Some of them are prophesying to the south. Some are, are prophesying to both. And, to, and so the, yeah, those are the pre-exilic prophets. Then you have three exilic prophets. That means they prophesied during the exile. You got Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah all during the exile. And then you have three that come after the exile when the people come back to the land. That's Haggai, Zephaniah, and Zechariah. And Mal, excuse me, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They're all after, right? But when we get back to here, where, you, you say, okay, so where does Jonah fit into all this? Because what ends up happening, they go into, uh, the, Assyria comes in 722 and takes the north away. They're done, boom, because they had no good kings. The south had some good kings, Uzziah, Josiah. They had a couple good kings, so they hung out a little longer. But the north comes in 722 and it's gone. Assyria takes them out, boom. South makes it about 100 years later, but eventually they go in 605. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem, destroys everything, takes them away. And they're gone 70 years until Cyrus declares that there's, the Jews can come back into their land. And so Jews come back in 538 BC. And under Haggai's encouragement and, and Zechariah, they rebuild the temple. It's not even close to what it used to be. I mean, they cry when it's done. They're like, this is nothing. It's like a shack but at least they have a place. But the problem is the city is still way dangerous and there, no one wants to live there. So a hundred years later, God sends a man named Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls so they can be protected so people can be worshiped. And so that's what he does in 444. And then right after him, Malachi prophesies that Elijah's gonna come and after him, the Messiah. And we saw in Matthew that Elijah did come. He was John the Baptist and so did Messiah. And then you have the crucifixion, the resurrection, and some major historical events that are still significant to this day. <laughs> that's your Bible. That's, that's, that's history. That's biblical history. Where does Jonah fit in? Jonah fits in um, in about 750. It's actually uh, 
it should be a little bit before the, the, the 722, they should be flipped. But Jonah's in mid eighth century BC when all those kings are ruling. And you're just like this king and this king and this king and this king. And we wouldn't know exactly when, except for there's this little verse in second Kings that gives us a hint of when he prophesied. Second Kings chapter 14, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, he was a good king of the South, king of Judah. Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam the second, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. So he's the king of the north. So, so Jonah is ministering to the northern kingdom and he reigned 41 years and he did what is evil. This guy was a wicked, wicked king. But despite him being wicked and not departing from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Jonah is sent to him to prophesy. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Aramah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, right? The prophet who was from Galilee, Gethepper, which is a little city about three miles north of Nazareth, believe it or not. That's the only reason we even know when Jonah was prophesying because of this. At some point during this wicked king, he goes to him and says, God's gonna enhance the kingdom. He's gonna, it's gonna actually grow. And it's not because you're a good king, old Jeroboam, because you're not. It's because God is gracious. And that's what happens. The kingdom grows at that point. But it's very temporary. Because what you need to know is at the same time Jonah is prophesying, there's two other prophets that are prophesying in the north. A man named Hosea and a man named Amos. You can read their prophecies as well. And Amos specifically says, y'all are done. Israel is gone, going into exile. Amos 5, 27, God says, I am sending you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord. This is coming. Hosea specifically mentions the who behind the where. They shall not return to the land of Egypt like they did back in the day. No, they're gonna have a new king. Assyria is gonna be their king because they've refused to return to me. So you got Jonah saying, okay, your land's gonna be expounded, but you got Amos and Hosea saying, but you're gone, you're done. Assyria is coming. And that's gonna be significant to, to where we're going with Jonah. But here, I want you to understand the context in which Jonah is prophesying is Israel is actually doing all right. Even though they have wicked king and wicked rulership, it seems like things are going well. They're prospering a little bit, right? Not because they're a moral place, not because they love God, because God is gracious and his kindness always is meant to lead to repentance. But I'm just, as I think about that, I'm thinking about, hey, it's very similar to where we live right now. We have a country, we're pretty blessed for the most part. And it's not because we're righteous. It's because God is kind. And I'm not saying we're, the United States is the covenant, you know, we're not we're the covenant people of Israel. I'm not saying that. The church is God's covenant people. I think the nation of Israel is God's covenant people. But there is some truth to the fact that we live in a, a pretty prosperous time, even though we have people ruling and reigning that don't always acknowledge God and are actually doing things opposite of God. And that doesn't mean it's always gonna be that way. God could drop the hammer at any time. It's his right. But his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So here's Jonah prophesying in this time period. It's a very unique book. Usually a prophet is known by his words. Jonah's not known by his words or his prophecies. He only gives like a sentence of prophecy. He's known more by his actions. His, his, prophet, his prophecy is more of a, of a dramatization of what's going on. Here's this prophet who has a divine calling, which he disobeys. God drops the hammer and has to rescue him. And it's meant to be a picture to Israel. Hey, Israel, you have a divine calling, which you've disobeyed. And I'm gonna drop the hammer, but I am gonna deliver you. And why does he do it? Because the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's why. That's why, right? 
And so it's a book that's filled with Hebrew humor and satire and irony. I'll try to bring it out as best I can. It really is, it's almost like a dark comedy where everyone does the opposite of what you think. Jonah, the man of God, is supposed to do this, ends up rebelling, and these pagan sailors are the ones who end up worshiping. The most wicked king in the world at that time, who is brutal, at a five-word sermon, repents, and even makes his cows repent. And Jonah is mad that his plant died. So it's just like humor and this contrast, all so that you would see who God is. And the book even ends, like it just ends and you're like, wait, that's the end? Is there no chapter five? What's, what's next? Micah? I don't, Micah? I don't wanna know what happens to Jonah. It just leaves you hanging. Because at the end, you see that God is gracious and slow to anger and abounding love and kindness. And the point is, so what are you gonna do about that? What are you gonna do? I don't know. Well, that's the point. It, it just kind of shows you who God is and it leaves it in our lap to say, okay, what are we gonna do about that? All right. This is a God who loves his enemies. He loves even Ninevites, right? And are you okay with that? Are you okay? That's where he's gonna leave it, all right? Let me give you a real quick outline overview. This is my outline. This is kind of just one I did. I always encourage you, hey, you outline it. Do it yourself. Read it this week, outline it. It kind of helps you think through the book. It breaks into four really easy sections. Chapter one, he's in the, fi- in the ship. Chapter two, he's in the fish. Chapter three, he's in the city. Chapter four, he's outside the city. Chapter one, he's a wall. Chapter two, he's a whale. <laughs> chapter three, he's preaching. And chapter four, he's pouting. Chapter one and two are about God's mercy on Jonah. Chapter three and four is God's mercy on Nineveh. So that's my outline. You come up with your own. Um, but uh, real simple to work through. Let's, let's jump in the first three verses. Just unpack the first three verses this morning. And let me leave you with a thought as we uh, begin this book. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And it's, it's, that language is very similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. Their evil had come up before God, and so he's going to judge. So the word of the Lord, the Dabar Adonai, which is very typical with a prophet, the word of the Lord came to Elisha, and what you usually see is they go and declare that word, right? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and here's where the irony starts, right? It's the Hebrew reader will get it off the bat. We don't, we don't read Hebrew, most of us, so we have to kind of work out a little bit. But here, let me kind of unpack what's going on. See, Hebrew names mean something significant in the Old Testament, especially. Jonah, Yonah, his name means dove. Dove. Uh, a significant name for, for the Hebrew people, right? A significant animal. I mean, you go way back to the beginning and Noah and the ark, and he's on this ark for several, several weeks, almost years. And, and at the end, when, when they're, they're testing to see, can we go out into the land, what do they do? They send a dove out the window. And the dove comes back with what? An olive branch, right? And if some of you use dove soap, that's the symbol of this day, of dove soap, right? The dove with the olive branch. It's a symbol of peace. Dove means peace for them. It's a precious animal. It's one of the few animals that are allowed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. You could offer a dove especially if you couldn't afford a, a goat or a lamb or an ox. It was, it was a poor person's sacrifice. It, it was able to supplement it. So when Mary and Joseph, after Jesus is born, they have to make a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem because they're so poor, they offer dove, right? So it's a picture of peace and of sacrifice for, for the Old Testament Israelites. It was actually a picture of their nation even in the Psalms. 
So he is dove and he is the son of Amittai. And this is related to the, the Hebrew word for truth or faithfulness, emmet. So he has a great name if you're a prophet, if you think about it. He is peace, son of truth. I mean, that's a great prophet name, right? It's like my old dentist. His name was Dr. Moeller. I mean, it was like the perfect name. I mean, you could, unless his last name was Cavity, you couldn't have a better name. All right. But here's the irony of the situation. Peace, son of truth, is anything but. Right? You, he, he, he gets a word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. This is what a prophet's waiting for. All right? God speaks. What do I do? I go and I tell everyone. It's not necessarily a job anybody wanted. You couldn't apply to be a prophet. There's no prophecy school. There's no job application. It's not really a job anybody wanted because you ended up dead most of the time. That's why Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you who stone the prophets. So you didn't want the job, but if it was yours, when the word of the Lord came, what do you do? You, you declare it, even if you didn't want to. Moses didn't want to, but he goes. Jeremiah's like, I'm done. But he says, the, the word of the Lord was like a fire in my stomach. So I had to speak. Jonah gets a word from the Lord. And, and the Hebrew text wants you to think, well, it kind of leads you astray. It says, Jonah arose. God says, arise. And so Jonah rose. But then he goes in the exact opposite direction. He says, go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of who? Assyria. Who is Assyria? Their enemies. What is prophesied Assyria is going to do? Take them into exile. That's why, that's why this is significant. That's why all, Hosea and Amos is significant. God says, go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is a wicked place. It's the sworn enemies of Israel. Right? It'd be the equivalent of this saying, Bill, arise and go to North Korea and proclaim to you, to claim them judgment. I'm like, I'm not going to North Korea. I can't even get in if I wanted to. But, you know, that, they're, they're a bad people. That's the idea. Ninevites were immoral. They had a fertility cult that was right there in Nineveh. They, they practiced infant sacrifice where they would put these babies on the altar with these bull gods and they would burn their children alive. And, the, and, and on top of that, they were the most brutal conquerors in the world of that day. Okay, they would skin their enemies alive. And then they would put their bodies on stakes outside their city. They would paint their houses, the inside of their walls with the blood of their enemies. There's actually, you can, you can Google it. You can Google archaeology in Nineveh. We've actually found Nineveh and they're excavating it. And their, their gates were decorated with, their, with the, how harsh they were. They would gouge out their enemy's eyes and he put a hook through their nose and they would drag them like they're dogs, right? That's the Ninevites. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to proclaim my message. Now, I mean, yes, it's not safe. I'd be like, that's not safe. But this should have been a, a message that Jonah was like, yeah, I can do that to my enemies. Nineveh's destroyed in 40 days. That's a good message for my enemies. But he doesn't go. Was he scared? No, oh, maybe, but that's not why he didn't go. Why doesn't he go? We'll come to that in a couple of weeks. You can read ahead if you want. But it's related to who God is. It's related to who God is. But Jonah does the unthinkable. He arises, you think he's gonna go, and he goes the opposite direction. Understand, you gotta know your geography here. So he's, he goes down to Joppa. Nineveh is 500 miles that way. So what does he do? I'm going to Spain. That's where he goes. Gets on a boat and he goes as far to the west as he can possibly go. And it says he's doing it to, get, to flee from the presence 
of the Lord. Not that he believed, oh, I can get out of God's eyesight. He knows the Psalms. He knows Psalm 139. Where can I go to hide from you, your spirit? I can't go anywhere. He knows this. The idea there, the language is not he's trying to hide from God. The idea is he is turning in his resignation. I am no longer, I am going from, I'm going to nonprofit organization status here. I'm out. I'm no longer the messenger of God. I don't want anything to do with this. I'm going this way. I'm out, right? Here's my two weeks notice. And so this is where we're left in the text. And I wanna highlight a principle here that that comes right out of verse three that I think is significant for us. I think there's a good application for us to think about. And the text goes out of its way to kind of highlight this principle that I think is significant. And here's the principle, right? Real simple is that disobedience always without exception leads to a, di- a downward spiral spiritually. That disobedience always leads on a downward spiral. Where do I get that? Again, verse three, if you do practice your Bible study methods and you're looking for repetition and looking for key words, uh, it, it highlights a couple things, it repeats itself a couple times that's significant with the word down. Anytime in this book, Jonah is running or being disobedient, he's always going down. And anytime he's obeying, he's always going up, right? It's a great little word play by the, by the author, by Jonah himself. So he goes down to Joppa and he goes down into the ship. And then later on, he's gonna go down deeper into the ship. And then in verse chapter two, he's gonna go down into the sea. Every time he's, he's falling away further and further, he's going down. And then finally, when he repents, chapter three, he arises and goes up, Right? Because disobedience always leads to a downward spiral. And what is physically true of Jonah is spiritually true of us. When we are letting our internal GPS rule the day and do what I wanna do, this is where I wanna go and I wanna do and how I wanna act, it leads to a downward spiral versus doing what God has called us to do. I took and take the baseball team to Atlanta this weekend. And I was riding up and I had my little Waze app open, right? Because I want to wave to everybody and, oh, you know, look, cop ahead. Yeah, you know, cop, you know. So I'm watching that and all of a sudden I get real close to Macon, which is like the armpit of the world, but that's another story. So I'm real close to Macon and it says rerouting. I'm like, rerouting? What do you mean rerouting? It says, get off one half mile. I'm like, Get off one half mile. What are you kidding me? This is 16. I got to get to 75. I got to go to Atlanta. I can't can't get off. And I had like 30 seconds to make a decision. Am I going to trust this little technological device? Because I don't know what's going on. Or do I stay the course? This is the right way. I know the right way. I've been to Atlanta a bunch of times. And so in that last moment, I got off because I'm like, I can't risk this. I got 13 teenagers in the back. I don't want to be in this van any longer than I have to. So I get off. And it brings me back across the highway and I get on this road that basically parallels 16. And as I'm driving parallel, I'm looking over to my right and I just see all these people just stuck. And I'm just laughing. <laughs> I'm so smart. Drive like three miles, get back, turn right and get right back on. It's an accident that hadn't even been reported on Waze yet. But it was, but my rerouting got me the last second. I thought that, that's the spiritual reality that we have, that we can say, I know what I'm doing. I'm staying right here. And there's one who's outside of us saying, no, no, you need to get off here. But I don't know why. Why, What are you telling me to do that? You just got to trust me and get off here and trust the results to me. And then when you get down there, you'll see, yeah, there was an accident. But I'm not going to tell you everything right away. 
And some of you have to make a decision today. You're, 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 you're in one of two places. You're on a downward spiral, you're on an upward climb. You have bought a ticket to Tarshish or you're on the camel to Nineveh. You say, no, I'm just hanging in Joppa. No, you're not. You're either on the boat to Tarshish or you're on the camel to Nineveh. There is no, there is no middle ground. And so I'd ask you, which one are you today? Spiritually, are you on a downward struggle? You're, you're doing your own thing. You're, you're disobeying and you're like, oh, I'll just do it, I'll just do it, I'll do it. There's this relationship that you know it's a downward spiral. It's unhealthy, it's immoral maybe. Or maybe it's neither of those. It's just become all consuming. This is the most important thing in your life. That's all you live for is this relationship. And you need to, you need to start stepping up and saying, no, no, no. I still love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and stuff. That's my priority. And you need to make those steps and you need to get out of that. Or maybe it's a financial, you're on a downward spiral financially because you are living beyond your means and every time you want something, you just go get the credit card. 18.3%, 19.6% and you are enslaved to debt and all you have to show for it is a couch you don't even like. But you're going deeper and deeper because you have to have it. Instead of the upward climb of living within my means and being content and being thankful and being generous and being good steward, but you're enslaved and it's a spiral that's going out of control. Or maybe it's the way you treat people or talk to people. You just think, well, if I can tell them what I want to tell them and I'm going to treat them the way I want to treat them and it's my employees and it's my neighbors and it's my family. And you're like James says, your tongue is a fire and it's just burning everything. And you need to start the upward mobility, the upward climb of being slow to speak and slow to anger, right? And quick to hear rather than trying for the anger of man, which will not accomplish the will of God, the righteousness of God. Or maybe there's just some secret thing. You're cheating, you're lying. There's some addiction that, that you're in. There's little secret pets in that you think you're in the bottom of the ship so no one can see you, but God sees. And the more and further and the longer you go into it, the more enslaved and the more downward spiral. Instead of bringing it to the light, exposing it, finding healing, right? And starting the upper climb. Or even in forgiveness, maybe you're holding a grudge, you're constantly bringing up that and that and that to this person, how they let you down. And three years ago, you did this and reminding and reminding and reminding instead of the upward climb where, where the proverb says, it is a glory of man to overlook an offense. Where, where Paul says, hey, forgiving one another, why? Because Christ in God, God in Christ has forgiven you. That's the upward climb. I don't know. I don't know what it is, where it is. I don't know if it, where you're at, but I think you need to ask the question, am I on the road to Tarshish or am I on the road to Nineveh? Because Tarsus is prettier, but God's saying go to Nineveh. What's best, right? And I know it can be challenging and it can be intimidating. You think, well, I'm so far gone. And that is why we come back to what is this book about? That the Lord is merciful and gracious and he is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and there's no one that's too far gone. In fact, God delights in people stepping out of the basement and into the light that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. And he will not bring up your past because as far as the east is from the west, so far he's, he removed your transgressions from you. It's so interesting, Jonah does, you, you read Jonah three and four, he didn't bring up, God is like, hey, you remember that fish? You better watch it, son, I got lots of fish. He don't bring it up again. He wants him to learn. He didn't bring it up again. God's not bringing up the past. If you're running this morning, Maybe it's your first time back in years. You're, you came for some reason this morning. I don't know, because God brought you. Don't run anymore. 
Start the upward climb. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He is merciful and gracious. If he can say, David's a man after my own heart after he did what he did, and Paul who is murdering and he's forgiven and becomes an apostle, you're not too far gone. That's, that's why the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent to pay the penalty of your sin so that you could not flee from God so that you could now run to him. That's who he is. And this book will just be a walking picture of that's how he is. He even forgives Ninevites and pouting prophets. So nothing is too great for him. So that's where we're going. If you have questions and you're struggling or whatever, I, I would just invite you this morning. Don't, don't, don't stay there. Don't keep running. Come talk to us. We'll have some folks in the back hall who will pray for you. We'll point you in a direction. Put, drop a, a card in a box and we'll set up an appointment and walk with you. Right? We don't want you to be stuck in the bottom of the ship. We want you on the camel to Nineveh, even if it's scary because that's where you'll be blessed. That's where God's favor is. That's where you, you will find uh, life and joy and satisfaction. Let me pray. And then we'll sing and reflect just for a few moments in, in song. Father, I uh, pray for everyone in this room. I don't know where they're at. They might be in a great spot. They might be in a bad spot. But you have them here and you know where they're at. And you, and you want them to draw near to you. And so whatever that looks like, Lord, repentance, confession, ending this or that. Uh, thank you that you desired for us to bring things to the light and that you are, are not, you're, not, you're not scared of that. You invite it. That we would be a people who know who you are and because of it, we do what you want us to do because you are a God who is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithful, covenant, faithful love even when we're not. So let us know that more and experience that more for Christ's name's sake, I pray. Amen. You guys can stand as we sing.